grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. It's Joe Sparrow here. Today's episode is part one of a two-part series about adoption and addiction. Our guest is an adoptee living in New York who wrote an incredible memoir about his adoption, childhood sexual abuse, battle with addiction and recovery. By the age of 20, he had succumbed completely to a suicidal lifestyle of drug dealing and prostitution. At age 45, and after many years of recovery, he began the challenging journey to uncover his origins and search for his mother. Welcome to Adopt Perspective, Kevin Barheit. Thank you. Kevin, firstly, let me congratulate you on your memoir, Dear Stephen Michael's Mother. While I was reading it, I was reminded of what Ernest Hemingway said about writing. There is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at the typewriter and bleed. <laughs> what, <laughs> what motivated you to write so honestly about the darkest periods of your life? That's great. Isn't it amazing when someone congratulates you on, on bleeding? <laughs> <laughs> It, it is amazing. It, it does feel like, uh, and thank you, that congratulations means a great deal to me. And, and so, do, so does your response, especially using a Hemingway quote is just awesome. The, the real piece, I think, is I didn't have a choice. If I was going to write about this, the, honest, the honesty was going to be uh, non-negotiable. And I think there was a couple of reasons for that. Number one, I've been in 12-step uh, programs for a long time. And I found that that was the most essential part of the relationship that I had, say, with my sponsor or other people that I knew in the program was we were brutally honest. We just put it out there. There wasn't shame. There wasn't remorse. There wasn't, uh, you know, this, this sense of regret. There was this, if we don't do this, we're going to die. If we don't share honestly, if we don't grow, if we don't shape our world going forward around brutal honesty, around being fully disclosive around our past, and we're not going to make it. We're not going to stay sober and we're not going to have the life that we probably just barely would want to dream of. So writing the book was, I think the motivation that I had was to help other people. And if I was going to help anyone else, that was the only way that I knew that ever helped me. People who have expertise are so important to me. I get a great deal of solace from doctors and, and teachers and my therapist. And there's a lot of people that can help me spiritually and otherwise, but none of that will, will congeal. None of that comes together as well as it does with one person helping another that has been through it. I had a friend of mine, Joe, Joe Barone, who passed away from AIDS back in the eighties. And when he was sick, I remember he told me once, he said, Kevin, I'd rather, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely show the way. And I think that's what I was trying to do was just walk with me for a few minutes. See if you can walk with me and maybe we can heal together. Yeah. 
Kevin, normally when I record a personal story episode, I just straight out ask for our guests to tell us their story. Um, but there is so much to yours and I don't want us to get lost. So I'm going to break it down a little more than usual, if that's okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood, your adoptive parents and how you came to know that you're adopted? Thanks. And it is more than okay, because I certainly, I certainly can get lost. It's a big, it's a big tale to get lost in. Most of us have these stories and it's easy to get lost. So I appreciate that kind of parsing it out as it will. And that's how the book is really written, isn't it? Is, is parsing it out in those pieces. When I was born, my, uh, my biological mother was from Louisiana. I didn't know any of this and she was not supported by her family. And she was sent from Louisiana, New Orleans, to New York to give birth to me. She lived with a family that I later found out about. Uh, they were gamblers that used to go and gamble with my grandparents in, in New Orleans. And she was sent to New York for a very specific reason, uh, because the laws here were so stringent. And when she put me up for adoption, that was it. And I use that phrase because that's a phrase that I know is very triggering and it was triggering for me, but that's the way it was explained to me. Kevin, you were put up for adoption. You were put up. It's almost like you were, you know, posted on a, on a wall. Hey, let's pick from one of those. Now there's a lot of beauty behind the story. I, my 92 year old adoptive mother lives with me. She's downstairs. I told her to be quiet while we're doing this. <laughs> and there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of beauty that comes from knowing uh, you know, what, what she wanted and what she cared for and what she was trying to achieve in her life. Uh, my biological mother was, um, was not able to care for me. That's what I was told. And my adoptive mother was able to care for me. She and my father, uh, my adoptive father, they tried to conceive for many years, couldn't. And when I was born, I was presented to them as an option for them to, to build a family. They always included me in discussions about that. So in the early days, uh, I don't remember, people would always say, when did you know you were adopted? And I don't remember a time when I didn't know. I'm sure there was, uh, but it was always a concept that was fed to me. And I, I use that, that, that phrase uh, with purpose. It was really spoon fed to me and it was fed to me in a way that I think social workers at the time and literature at the time really tried to help adoptive families to bring their, their, their adoptive children into the world in a safe way, in a, in a way that was more congenial. Um, unfortunately, it didn't always work and it didn't play out too well, but I think they did the best that they could. Yeah. Only um, 15 pages into your book, you reveal an incident with an adult when you were just nine years old. Could you tell us about that? Wow, it's only 15 pages. Boy, that really makes my jaw drop. Just to think yeah. about the idea that, it, you're right, I, I do go from birth to 15 in pretty quick order, or birth to nine in pretty quick order. When I was born and, and, and adopted into my, my adoptive family, uh, things were pretty easy for the first nine years. And there were some struggles in my family. My dad had some ill health. He had suffered from depression and anxiety and some other issues, uh, which before I was born, he, he struggled with greatly. Uh, he actually um, couldn't take care of himself very well. Uh, and at one point, um, took some time off of work for quite a while. And my mother had to buy him a dog in order to get him to go out of the house and walk the dog. And, uh, but the family in general sorted through some of those issues and raised me in a way and provided a home for me that was fairly stable and loving. 
Unfortunately, uh, they also put me into some of these groups. One of them was called 4-H. Now, 4-H is unfamiliar to a lot of people, but it's like the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts or the Cub Scouts and things like that, uh, except 4-H is a group that works with uh, bringing children into the knowledge about the environment, agriculture, uh, farming, things like that. Because I lived in a town called Rotterdam, which is near the city of Schenectady, but I'm only 15 minutes away from farmland. And unfortunately, that 4-H leader uh, was also a pedophile. And when I was nine years old and a part of that group, uh, I was led with other children in the group uh, to be one of his victims. And they call that grooming. That's something very specific to not the adoptive world, of course, but the abuse world. And we were groomed. We were groomed to think that we were in a safe place. We were groomed to think that we were special because we were being brought into this adult world, this very special adult place. And we were both, we were molested. Several of us were molested. Uh, that really turned, I think, things from not normal, but I think, uh, you know, average in a life uh, to a very, very um, convoluted sense of who I was and what my value was in the world, in the world. Yeah, I can imagine. Kevin, there's an event in your family that you say unraveled you. You describe it as if your sense of self was being depleted. Can you tell us about this time? Hmm. My dad, uh, unfortunately, my adoptive father wasn't really well, even in those early days. Uh, and I think that that also led to a lack of him being able to uh, discipline me would be one word, but also uh, step up, you know, be a part of my daily struggles. And even while the abuse was happening, no one knew. I didn't tell them. They didn't, they didn't really conceive of what might be happening there. Um, but I was changing. I was changing pretty drastically. I was, uh, my behavior was changing, my attitude towards life, crying a lot, self-harming, uh, stealing, uh, acting out in ways that just didn't make sense to them and didn't make sense to me. But my dad was also getting ill at that time and no one knew, no one knew what was happening. Again, they thought it was his nerves. They thought it was maybe his weakness, his anxiety, his depression, and all this was undiagnosed until he had a heart attack. And when I was 11, my father had open heart surgery uh, and he barely survived. Uh, that was back in a, in a time when they wanted to do uh, two bypass surgeries. Um, they were only able to do one and it took them 14 hours to do it. Um, many years later, he had surgery again. He had six bypasses. It took them 12 hours. So this was at the beginning of that kind of um, surgery being even offered in America. He had to go to Boston to get the surgery. And I remember what you're talking about, the depletion. And it wasn't just a sense of a physical depletion because I was losing my father. I was losing his physical health. I was losing his physical presence. I was losing his, his bodily ability to, to hold me, to carry me, to lift me, to help me, to be a part of me. There was no more ball playing. There was no more, you know, going out and doing things like that. But I lost him mentally. Uh, he broke down pretty terribly. I lost him emotionally almost completely at that point. And I think one of the biggest breaks was that spiritual break, that sense of you're supposed to be there for me, but now, now who am I without you? Now what am I without you? And so that depletion was more of a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual depletion. And it was an unraveling. It was a real unraveling. And I wouldn't say it was an all-at-once unraveling. It was watching the unraveling happen uh, string by string, piece of yarn by yarn, you know, just completely 
watching a child, uh, as I look back on it now, an 11-year-old child, uh, feel fairly lost and abandoned. Yeah, there is so much for you to deal with at such an early stage of life. You probably partly answered this question, Kevin, but it was only a couple of years after this age 11 when you began self-medicating with drugs. What do you think led up to that? It was very shortly after that time. And you're right. There was a, a real domino effect. So the, the abuse happened when I was nine. My dad, just a couple of years later, and right around that same time at, at 11, I found my first drink with my best friend, Tony Rotundo, when we had a six-pack of beer each. Uh, first of all, I would say that it was just something to do. That was Tony said, you want to do something on a Friday? I said, sure. And I'd never done anything like this before. I had had drinks when I was younger. My dad used to give me a sip of this and a sip of that. So I think I had a taste for it. But Tony and I drank a six pack each. And for an 11 year old to drink a six pack of beer on the railroad tracks, that sounds like a lot. Um, I couldn't get enough. The next morning, I remember waking up and I didn't feel so great, but an 11-year-old can really bounce back, I think, physically from maybe that hangover that you and I would probably suffer greatly from now. But one of the things that I remember distinctly, and I think I wrote about it in the book, was really understanding that this was what the, this is what I was looking for. This is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Now I knew what I was going to do. And I think that what that started to provide for me, and I think that's a really good word is provide, is kind of a covering, just a coating, just a light dusting on that unraveling, a real coating, a salve maybe on the real, the real destitution that I was starting to feel. Because now I was not only losing my father, not only losing that sense of family that I had, because my mother could take care of my father, my father couldn't take care of my, himself, and they were expecting me to take care of myself, and I just couldn't do it. Uh, it probably wasn't even unreasonable. Maybe some some kids would be able to. But also, I was also dealing with the abuse that had happened and the feelings I had from that, the sense of worth I had from that. And unbeknownst to me, I think I was dealing with the sense of loss from my adoption. And the, that relinquishment was there. It was buried, but it was there. And all these pieces were just bubbling up and hurting and suffering and the confusion was there. But the alcohol just was a salve at first. And then the drugs became, I think, more of a, a blockage, a way of me blocking out all of those feelings and those fears. And I was really demoralized. Uh, I don't think it was a conscious choice for me. I don't think there was some effort for me to try to fix things. I wasn't, I didn't know I was doing that. Uh, it wasn't like an adult drinking so that they can say, uh, you know, uh, you know, pour away their, their sorrows for an evening. It wasn't something like that. Uh, but inside of me, I was just looking for some way, some some way that I didn't have to feel like I was sacrificing who I was to have just an hour or two of of calm, of inner peace, yeah. of joy. Sure. Wow. Um, Kevin, I'd like to ask you about the disruption to your adoption that took place in your teens. Um, what led up to that? The foster homes. Sure. Yeah. The the idea that I was adopted and should have been placed in, in home and fine uh, was, I think, even something that I 
even in the midst of my father's illness, even in the midst of my uh, young addiction and, and, and things became very troubled. By the time I was 12, I was in the back of a police car. You know, I, I had OD'd at school. By the time I was 13, I was on probation and, and many things were going wrong. I was robbing houses, I was stealing, and I was in a lot of trouble quite often. Uh, but I still never in a million years thought that I would not be in this home that I would not be in this home. This was the one thing that seemed like I could count on as being a constant and it changed almost overnight. Uh, the probation officer uh, found out that I, I was, uh, uh, my probation officer found out that I was not behaving as well as I told him I was. Uh, I got in trouble at school and uh, I, I hurt someone. I got in a fight and I hurt them. Uh, and I was taken out of the school. I was, I think, expelled from the school or suspended at least for quite some time. and. Uh, he gave me a choice. He said, you will either go to a reform school or we can put you into foster care, but you are not going home. And at a young age like that, it was, that, was, um, that wasn't something I was able to really comprehend as a, as a choice, as, as a healthy, healthy way to approach that. Um, but I, I didn't think that I had much of an option. Uh, unfortunately, both my mother and my father had been struggling to to care for my father and care for a child that was now actively in the midst of addiction and alcoholism and struggling greatly with mental, I think what I would even consider to be a mood disorder or bipolar, uh, acting out in terrible ways, uh, they just couldn't handle it. And I think in many ways, I really understand how they just felt helpless and hopeless. Uh, but I was taken out of my, my adoptive home at 14. I was put into a foster home. That foster home contained uh, people that were alcoholic and were, uh, they weren't very abusive, but they weren't very healthy. I ran away from that home and was put in another foster home. And that one was both full of alcoholism, addiction, and they were abusive. I ran away from there three times. I was put in a group home after that called Wait House, W-A-I-T-T. -T. We're all in this together which was actually run by a, a Roman Catholic priest, Father Ralph D. Pasquale. And I lasted there just one summer, but I was so out of control by that point. And then they put me in a detention center and that detention center, I was there for an evaluation, a 30 day evaluation. And they finally did send me back home. I was 15 and a half when I, when I came back to my, to my adoptive family's home. And I was pretty, I was pretty changed. I was a pretty yeah. different guy than the one that that was there a year before. And um, and your life pretty much plunged into a very dark place from that. What happened during the time from then on? I think that was that. That's right. That was the change, and the change was that I was I was beyond hopelessness and helplessness. I think at that point I ran directly towards suicidal um, lifestyle. Uh, the, the drugs and the alcohol became everything to me. Um, I also was raped uh, in Schenectady, which is the town, the city where I, where I, where I um, was raised and where I live now, actually. And the, the rape, the gang rape, the, the constant addiction, the dealing, the drugs, the, 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 the street lifestyle uh, just became everything to me. It became all I knew. It became all I was. And I didn't equate that at that time. I did not equate that to the low sense of worth. I didn't equate that to an understanding of looking at my body as a piece of meat. I didn't understand that I was slowly killing myself. I'm using language that's, that's, a, that's an adult version of what was happening. 
And in the book, I don't describe it that way. I don't describe it the way I'm talking to you now. I don't talk about it as low self-worth or understanding myself for the abuse or trying to commit suicide. None of those words were in my head. I was just heading towards the next drink, heading towards the next drug, because that's all I thought I deserved. That was the only lifestyle that I thought was left available to me. That was even an option to me. My mother and father, who, as much as they loved me, really uh, became absent from my life at that point, more, more from, I think, my choice than anyone else's. And it was very difficult, so I'm sure, to be a part of anyone's life like that when I was so self-destructive. Um, and prostitution became a part of who I became and how I lived my life. And it was pretty, pretty awful. It was uh, children that were born. I have two older daughters that uh, I love very much, um, but they were they were born into an addictive lifestyle. I was arrested many times and I was jailed, and I spent a great deal of time um, under the under the uh, the thumb of of law enforcement and probation. Was there anyone that was trying to help you during this time? Everyone but me, probably. Yeah. And you know, I think in, in, in essence, that's even unfair. I'll give myself a little credit. I think I was, I thought I was trying to help myself. I thought this was yeah. the way to help myself. I really did. Uh, my parents loved me and I think tried their best. I think that of all the people that I can think of, even that probation officer that, that plucked me out of my home, his name is Bernie and we're friends now. I know him after all these years. Uh, I think he's, he had, he had one of the most lasting effects on me. He did care. Uh, he did the best within the system as it was built, which was pretty unhealthy and unsupportive of families and keeping them together. Uh, but I think that he did the best he could, and he let me know that there was, there was a way to behave. There was a way to relate to other people uh, as men, as, as he and I uh, learned. And then I was part of a group that he had uh, with other boys. And then he, he really gave me that, I think, that, that understanding that there was a way to communicate with other people and to care for other people that didn't have to include all of this drugs, alcohol, and abuse. It just didn't. But I couldn't stay away from it. There's another person, two people actually, that I'd like to mention. One is Father Ralph. I mentioned him earlier. Father Ralph De Pasquale was the, uh, he ran the uh, weight house, the, the group home that I was in. He had a great effect on me. Still to this day, I even have a letter downstairs that I had written him a letter to say, I wanted to let you know that I'm okay now. And I have the letter that he wrote back to me and it's just a treasure of mine. And he really did have an effect on me because, again, he let me know that there was a spiritual hope. There was a spiritual journey. There was a way that I could get out of this. Of course, I wasn't ready, but it stuck with me. It kept in my mind and in my heart. And then there was Jane. Jane McCarthy, who I wish was still with us, but she's passed away uh, just last year. Um, and I did get to talk to her before the book came out, but she never saw it published. And she's in the book, and she's one of my treasures, one of my all-time treasures. She was a counselor at the same place, Wade House. And again, she was one of those people that let me know that, Kevin, you you have worth, you have value, and I'm not going to let you tell me that you don't. She didn't criticize me. She didn't judge me. She didn't make me feel like I should be better than I am. She said, you are enough. You are special. You are worthy. Um, and I miss her terribly. And it really, I really long for her to hear me right now. So let's, let's just, let's just hold on to that right now because she's listening. Hi, Jane. <laughs> um, so what was the catalyst then that led to your sob sobriety? A lot of people ask me that question. It's a good one. Um, and 
most people hit a bottom, and I hit many. As you know, I was a prostitute. I was in jail. I was not able to care for myself. I was a 10th grade dropout in the end. A 10th grade dropout, and I couldn't spell my last name. I was very sick. I was really saturated with drugs and alcohol, and the lifestyle had really gotten me to the point where I couldn't put sentences together. I couldn't have done anything like this. I wouldn't have even known how to, how to speak like this. And what happened was I made a decision to stop using drugs and alcohol because no matter how much I seemed to steal, deal, borrow from my girlfriend, or even work a nighttime job, I never seemed to have enough money so that I could really continue using the drugs at the way I, and that's why I prostituted myself. I never did it for the money. I did it for the drugs. And I was always happy when somebody paid me in drugs rather than money. So on January 1st, 1986, I made a New Year's resolution. I made a resolution that I would stop using drugs and alcohol for one year so that I could save enough money so I could buy enough drugs so I could deal drugs and never have to buy them again. I was, I was an entrepreneur. That was my entrepreneurial idea. Now, remember, I'm a 10th grade dropout. I can't spell my last name. I don't know the word entrepreneur, much less how to spell it. But that was my idea. So it was really a one-year stint that I had set myself up for. And if you know anything about addiction, I went through withdrawal within hours. And then within days, I was as sick as I'd ever been because it'd been a long time since I hadn't self-medicated. And I didn't realize that I was in withdrawal. I didn't realize it was the drugs and alcohol that were a problem to begin with. So this couldn't be the problem here. I thought I was just sick. I thought I had a fever. I thought I had a stomach bug. I was very ill and I don't want to get too descriptive here. You can understand that going through withdrawals from serious addiction is, is not pretty and it's really gruesome, but the worst part of it wasn't the physical withdrawals. Those were awful. The emotional were terrible too, but a few days after the physical withdrawals started to uh, lessen, I saw myself for who I was. And it was the first time in many, many years that I had not looked at the world through the prism of what used to be a salve, what used to be just a, a coating. It was just the drugs and the alcohol were just a thick, thick scrim that I couldn't even see through anymore. But all of a sudden it cleared just enough so I could see the, the addiction. I could see the abuse and I could see the prostitution, and I could see so much more. I saw every minute, and it just, you know, it's like that when, you, when you're drowning or, you know, you're going to die and you, everything flashes before your eyes. Well, I think most people would hope that when everything flashes before your eyes, you're seeing all the wonderful things of your life. Well, I saw the hell, and I'll be honest with you, it wasn't that I didn't even equate it with the drugs and alcohol. I just equated it with me being evil and um, of very little, if if any worth. And I felt not that I wanted to go back and use drugs. I just wanted to die. I just really thought I should commit suicide. As a matter of fact, now I, I word it differently when I talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, usually when I'm being very honest with them. And I'll say, I thought I should be annihilated, that I should never have been born. I shouldn't exist at all because that was a pretty hard life to really face all in one, in one breath. And when I reached out for help, uh, when I finally realized I needed help and I opened myself up for the option of getting help, uh, that's when I was able to first, for the first time in ages, take a breath of fresh air. And that made all the yeah. difference in the world.
I guess that's where the real work begins. And and when you begin unpacking the traumas in your life, you almost tackle them in reverse order, leaving adoption to last. Why do you think you, the order of your healing unfolded in this way? I, I think that you're you're right to ask that. And it was really not obvious to me for a long time, even through writing the book and thinking about this and opening up to it. I think in many ways that the... Um, the addiction was the most obvious. It was the most. It was the most um, fully formed painting of who I was that I could see. Right, because that was clear. I was arrested. I was addicted. I was, you know, uh, my my wife had left me and taken the kids. You could see all those pictures, all those pictures, and they were. It was like a movie that ran in my head over and over again, and you just gotta stop it. So this was like damage control. And this was the most obvious one. Now you talk about the reverse order. You're right. I was I was adopted and then I was relinquished and, and adopted at birth. I was abused at nine and I, you know, didn't start using drugs and alcohol till I was eleven. But when I first started to recover, I didn't even know I was abused. All I knew was don't use drugs, as they say in, in 12, 12 step parlance, you know, don't drink and drug, right? Don't drink and drug and go to meetings. Do your thing. So I just kept it simple. I just tried to really care for myself and tried to get it one day at a time from a high school dropout to somebody who was taking a college class from a college class to a college degree, you know, from not being able to keep a job to being able to hold a job from not being able to uh, eat right, not being able to hold down food at all to being able to, you know, eat normally and put on a few pounds. I was just looking for that kind of change. And then one day I realized in therapy uh, that there was something wrong with me, very wrong with me. It was my my understanding of who I was as a as a physical sexual being, not just as a man, you know, in my sexuality, but as a human in my sexuality, in my understanding of my worth and my value. And it really was obvious to my therapist. She would ask me, Kevin, you know, were you ever abused? And I said, No, no, sorry, never. And it took me weeks of working with her to uncover. Number one, the abuse that had happened when I was nine. It was always something I knew in my mind had happened. I knew it wasn't something that all of a sudden I remembered. I knew it had happened. I didn't know it was abuse. I didn't know yeah. it was wrong. I was so distorted in my understanding of what humans should treat each other like that I thought that was just what people do. Thank God I had never done it, but I had had it happen to me. And the rape. I, I had no idea that's what had happened. I was a 15 year old boy that was raped by two men, 30 some odd year old men. That's not supposed to happen to a 15 year old. That's not supposed to happen to anyone, male, female, it doesn't matter. And it took me a whole lot of unpacking that and healing from that because as soon as I realized what had happened to me and I understood why I was behaving the way I was did, things didn't clear up in a minute. They didn't clear up overnight. That was just like wanting to die all over again. That was like trying to face who I was all over again. So those things were really unknown to me. And I think the one that was the deepest unknown was the relinquishment, the deepest yeah. unknown. And I did not know that adoption was anything more than I had been taught it was. And I'll use the wording the way it was always told to me, you know, your mother loved you so much that she put you up for adoption because she couldn't care for you. And we love you so much, so we adopted you. Now, to, to wrap that, you know, around my poor little brain cells uh, and try to make that to make sense is a distortion that I, I it's, it's some emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual gymnastics that I can't do anymore. 
but I did it for a long time. And the person that helped me to even begin to look at it was Roz Peer. Unfortunately, Roz has passed away, and she was a birth mother who had given up her twins and found them and was struggling with the relationship. And she knew that I was adopted because I would mention it in passing to people at work. And she took me out for lunch and chatted with me about it. And I was, I was in my 40s by the time I was able to start that search. And it was probably one of the biggest lifts that I could ever imagine um, because it's not like you stop using drugs and alcohol and if you do certain things, you'll be, you'll, you know, you'll be okay. It's not like you recognize the abuse in your life and if you get therapy and do things, you, you'll heal. This was a journey that had no real trajectory that I could be guaranteed. As a matter of fact, most people told me this could really, really hurt more just by beginning the journey. And it did. And it had a lot of ups and downs. And to this day, it's still very treacherous at times. It's really not yeah. the most, um, sometimes I don't feel like I, I'm the most willing participant in my, in my, um, in my continued journey as an adoptee and my understanding of who I am in that realm. I don't always feel like I'm willingly participating, but I'm getting there. Kevin, you just said before you're in your 40s when you began to search for your biological mother and and you mentioned earlier again that you had been placed for adoption in New York because of how stringent the laws were there. So as in the USA, each state of Australia has their own adoption legislation. However, unlike Australia in many states of the USA, it is still quite difficult or impossible to access identifying information in many of those states for adoptees, mothers and fathers. So what was it like for you to search in New York and what support did you have? Search angels were the most important piece. And I think within our, the triad or the constellation community was mostly where I found the support that I needed and the support that I, I feel like was the most healthy for me. It would have been really hard for me. And this is, you know, weird to say in the age of Facebook and DNA and things like that, uh, it, it, it would have been weird for me to go too fast. I think I was at a place where I needed, and Roz, uh, this uh, birth mother who I who befriended me, uh, was very helpful because she told me, you know, Kevin, this this is this can happen at your pace, and the important part of it is that it's your journey, and you make it your process, and pay attention to every moment that you're going through it because you'll learn who you are. Not just the search, the conclusion of the search, wasn't going to be the objective. It was the daily finding out who I am. And Roz was great, but then I moved away from New York City, which is where she lived, and I moved upstate, and I found other uh, uh, birth mothers, search angels, who helped me a great deal. Uh, Judy was one, and uh, there was another uh, adoptee who was very, very supportive of me, Michael, and he was loving and wonderful and helpful, and he had actually uh, reunited with his, his biological family. And I think that what also helped me a great deal was having the support of the family that I have now, um, my, um, my, my wife and my children. I talked to them and I told them what I was doing before I did it. And they were behind me 100%. So I didn't feel like the days when I came home and I felt like this was, you know, um, hurting too much. I didn't feel like I didn't have a safety net. I didn't feel like I didn't have somebody to catch me. I knew that my wife would be there so I could cry. 
I knew that my sons would give me the space I needed, even though they were little boys at the time, because they were, they wanted their dad to grow and to change and to become, you know, not just the father that they needed to be, but the man that they needed me to be and that I wanted to be. And so I think that having those people in my life in my corner were very important. I think you're right, though, that adoption in history has uh, so many different uh, eras to it. I was born in the baby scoop era. I was relinquished in an era when the whole point of adopting babies and relinquishing babies was to keep it completely shameful and secret. And the, the, the reverberations of that are still being felt. Uh, and the sadness of it is that most people think that it just affects the adoptee. They don't even recognize the birth mother and how it affects the birth mother. But what I think is even more profoundly upsetting is that they don't realize how it affects everything. It affects my work, let's just say. Let's just go for profit, okay? It affects my work. It affects my ability to concentrate, to behave, to think well of others, to not be afraid every minute that you're going to abandon me, that you're going to fire me, that you 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 could be having, my boss can be having a bad day and I'm starting to feel like I got to polish my resume to go off, to go out the door. All People don't recognize the, 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 the pebble that they think they're throwing in the, in, in the pond. It's not a pebble, you know, it's an asteroid hitting, hitting a, a, you know, an ocean. And we are just seeing the, the long-term effects of that uh, with mental health, uh, physical health, long-term uh, things like for me, uh, I've got rheumatoid arthritis and I can really trace that back to the traumas uh, and understanding that. Uh, there's a whole lot of pieces that I think that throughout history, um, people have made mistakes in the adoption um, world. Uh, and I think much of the legislation is changing slowly but surely here in America. Uh, it was very difficult for me. Uh, and I am glad that things are changing in New York, but they're very slow to change. There's other wonderful organizations and there's certain states in America, such as Indiana, that has done some really powerful work. And uh, some of the people there, Marcy Keithley is a good friend of mine, and she is a co-founder of the Indiana Adoptees Network, which originally was uh, focused on Indiana's legislation in that state. Now it's the National uh, Association for Adoptees and Parents, and they're doing wonderful work for the nation. So we need to continue to think like that. Uh, but recognizing that uh, as much as it was a struggle for me to, uh, to see other people in uh, around me that have had success and thinking, well, you know, they're from Vermont where it was easier or they're from another state where it was different. Um, I don't want to use the phrase, I played the cards that were dealt me because it's still not okay. But, you know, we're, we're in a place right now where I can see that America or Australia or other countries are making inroads. And I want to support those inroads any way that I can. Um, I don't want to belabor the fact that it was hard for me, um, except to say that it doesn't need to be that hard for others. I would hope that we would learn from not just our mistakes, um, but we would learn from our successes. And uh, different countries are doing it different ways. Hopefully that will continue the trend moving forward. Uh, I do see that 
as much as we are making some really nice inroads in this country, we're also finding uh, not not small pockets, but large, large pockets of resistance for the legislation to change. Uh, and for every law that changes, there seems to be two that come up to make to make it almost harder uh, for the real purpose of the adoption community uh, to have a voice in this. Um, you know, it, it really is a community effort. It's community and it's not just about you know, the adoptive parents. And I think that's the biggest problem that we have in America is that the biggest voices are the adoptive parents uh, who are who are making the most, um, uh, getting the most press. Um, very similar here in Australia um, in history. And I wish you all well with making those changes and, and making life easier for all of you as far as connecting with your biological roots. Without giving away too much um, about the ending of your book, can I ask if you were able to connect with your biological family? Yeah, you're, you're, you're good to ask it that way. The search did conclude. Let's just put it that way. Eh? The search did conclude and it has been uh, full of silver linings. The, um, you know, I think that if the, the book or the movie Silver Linings Playbook hasn't, hadn't been named already, I would name the book that. Yeah, the the obvious uh, part of the book, just if you look at it, if anyone has the cover in front of them, if you're listening to this and you see the cover is there's two mothers on there, right? So I do know who my adoptive mother is, obviously, and I know who my biological mother is. And I, I, I think there are parts of the book that are important to let the reader experience and have it unfold. So there's parts in there that I, I, I won't be so specific but I absolutely know where I came from uh, on my maternal side. And I absolutely know my, um, uh, there's parts of the family that I never knew existed. Um, I'll, I'll give a shout out to a couple of them just for fun. How's that? Hi, Uncle Bob. <laughs> I got an Uncle Bob. Hi, Uncle Bob. <laughs> and Uncle Bob is a, um, he's in the book and uh, he's a wonderful man. And uh, he's my, um, He's my, my mother's uh, youngest brother, and he's a hoot, and he's a great guy, and he loves me very much. Uh, I think the people that are uh, maybe readers would, uh, listeners, and hopefully readers would be most interested in is I'll say hi to um, my beautiful, um, my brother, John, my sister, Julie, and my amazing brother, James. We never knew each other growing up. We never got to see each other or hold each other's hands or punch each other in the nose or yell at each other or laugh. But we got that now, don't we, guys? We got that. How's that? Is that clear? That's, that's pretty good. And um, I think you've answered my last question, which was what the these relationships have brought to your life. And I can see you. Our listeners can't see you, but I can see you. And you're absolutely glowing right now. <laughs> um, that is true. Uh, everyone that's listening, we're on a Zoom call and we're having the time of our life looking at each other and knowing that you can't see us smiling and uh, probably me near tears right now. But yes, because I had so much that came before the traumas of my life that I just discussed, we call those compounding traumas. I've really learned to value the compounding healing. And Although things didn't always turn out the way I thought they would in my recovery from addiction, in my healing from the abuse, um, and also in my search, it's not been perfect. None of it has been perfect. Um, I can 
I can tell you that when I accepted what I, what did happen, what did come to me, the healings were also compounded. The healings were also what you just said, put a glow on my face, a sparkle in my eyes, right? I mean, I, I don't know if you guys can hear it in my voice, but I'm smiling ear to ear. <laughs> and um, the joy is profound. Not always, not every minute, and not every moment of my day feels uh, um, like it, like it, like it turned out the way I wanted it to. And, but I can tell you that I, I would not want to go back and change anything. Um, one of the things you asked me first was why I wrote the book as honestly I did, as honestly as I did. And I think that the important thing for me has always been because I don't want to have any regrets. And I look back at my life now and I don't have any regrets. I don't regret that I was relinquished. Am I sad about it? Yeah. Does it still hurt sometimes? Mm-hmm. Do I wish that maybe life could have turned out a little differently for me? Boy, doesn't it sound like any idiot would not want to have gone through everything that I just described? But I'm here. I'm here talking to Joe. And you're all listening to this. And maybe, just maybe, there's some value in everything I went through. And I wanted to put that in the book. And I wanted people to see that juxtaposition. I wanted you to know that no matter how much torture, seemingly torture I, I endured, I'm not trying to say it was a brave thing, but I got the courage now and I'll take this courage over anything because it, it, it helps me get through every day and it helps me see that I have not only, not only value, I have immense value, not only purpose, I have clear purpose uh, and not only hope, but I have, uh, I have a destiny now. I don't know what it is every day, but I'm sure of it. And I'm really looking forward to it. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your incredible story and your book with us. I know it's going to resonate with so many of our listeners and I've just loved talking to you. Um, so thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. I hope we get to do it again and again. So, um, and everyone, check out our episode notes page for relevant links to Kevin's book, Dear Stephen Michael's Mother, and his YouTube channel and other relevant information. Meanwhile, do you have a story that you'd like to share with us? If you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete this prospective guest form that you'll find there. And note that Adopt Perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 if you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank you.